All right, welcome to episode 39. We're at the house with Charlie Warsham, a good friend of mine. Good to see you, bud. Good to see you. I like your music. Yeah, yeah, we... I think Mike and I had this music accidentally the very first show, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, what we got? <laughs> and we were just looking for some kind of game show music, and now it's stuck, so we play it every single Bobbycast. Maybe <laughs> after 50 crazy. or something, we'll change it. Well, it's going to say, fix your mic. Get comfortable. Yeah, I'm, well, man, I am comfy. Oh, maybe I'm not that comfortable. Let me get comfortable, too. <laughs> yeah. And let me take my shirt off. Yeah. All right, now I'm ready. <laughs> so, uh, it's good to see you again. You, too. Uh, you have a record coming out in April. I just kind of want to give the overview, and then we kind of... Go around with the whole story first. Yeah. So you have a record coming out in April, right? That's right. All right. So a new record comes out in April. Uh, I know Charlie for uh, I've known you for a few years now. Yeah. Um, you are a multi instrumentalist. Well, Mike, how would we describe Charlie? People who've never heard it before. Before we get into the story. Uh, I mean, he grew up super cerebral. Yeah. Like genius prodigy kid. <laughs> Who's Robert now in around music? And yeah. Playing. yeah, like even the greats go. Hey, Charlie Warsham's awesome. Oh. So now that we've said that, I want we kind of dig into the story a little okay. bit. Okay. So that because people listen, like who's Charlie Warsham? That's who it is. One of the smartest guys I know. Oh well, thank you. My mom is a school teacher. I, I owe a yeah, lot. I owe a lot to that. What uh, what she teach? Well, a little bit of everything over the years. Uh, forever she taught sixth grade, and um, she now has transitioned into running the gifted programs back in my hometown. So you were a gifted kid though, right? I, I did some of the gifted, we had gifted opportunities from, I'd say, eighth grade on. You know? So there wasn't like a GT in second grade for you guys in Mississippi? Oh, not not necessarily. But that's where my mom comes in. She always had the best like educational books and just she encouraged my curiosity you know and she she believes in travel as an education and so i was very well traveled at a young age um that and that made a huge difference you know were you an all a's kid uh yeah <laughs> because you loved learning or because you the pressure was there or both? Uh, I, the i'd say the pressure was maybe the third on the list that it, I, I did truly love and still do love learning. Um, but it also, and you can probably relate to this, it, it was sort of a game. And I love, I feel like I have a healthy competitive spirit. And it was fun to treat it kind of like a game. Like a competition. Like a competition. That I a completely bit. get. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you, you go to school and you grew up in Granada, Mississippi? Yeah. Right. So what? So I come from Arkansas, a population of like seven hundred where I grew up. Yeah. How big is Granada? Well, the county is uh, about twenty five thousand, I think. Is Granada a county or a town? It's both. Okay, it's both. And so within the city, it's probably fifteen. I could be off on those numbers. I mean, I graduated in a class of uh, one hundred eighty five. It's closer to two thirty or forty now, I think. Um, so it's it's not a small small town. It's not a big town either but it's big fish in a little pond kind of town when you go back to granada are you the big deal there well i mean i i have a lot of good friends there i have a lot of people that have seen me since i was you know as they say knee high to a grasshopper and you know playing banjo at the nursing home and all that sort of thing and so uh i, I I'm, I'm very very i feel very loved back home so that means yeah so okay yeah. <laughs> yeah. let's start with you as a kid and so you start to pick up what instrument at what age uh as soon as i struck out at t-ball and karate didn't you know sparring didn't work out that great 
I realized I should maybe try something else, and it was piano lessons, and that was in kindergarten. And I stuck with piano lessons through my high school years. Um, and I, we would come up here to Nashville a ton. So when, that your mom would bring you up? Yes, yeah. part of that travel thing. And we would go to uh, Opryland when the theme park was still around. And this guy, Mike Snyder, he's a member of the Grand Ole Opry and, and a very beloved part of the country music story. And uh, he had this show and uh, and the American Bandstand. And he played this song he had written about running over the German Shepherd in the driveway and making a coat for his wife out of it, the fur coat song. And, and I went up to Nashville wanting a guitar because I always wanted to rock out on an electric guitar. But my mom's psychology... Uh, and seeing Mike Snyder combined made me go back to Grenada wanting a a banjo. Uh, So you came to Nashville knowing the piano, wanting to play the guitar, but then you were influenced into the banjo. Yes. And what age was that? Uh, Right around second grade. So didn't you, at some point in your life, and I I want to go back, but didn't you win like a championship at banjo playing? (laughs) Yeah. So part of the story with that, I would go to a lot of these small community events bluegrass days you know where they'd have a concert and a contest and you could you could enter all the contests they'd have a fiddle and a mandolin and a banjo contest and after the banjo i started picking up other instruments every year or two and and uh here's the deal there there'd only be maybe two competitors in the mandolin competition and there'd be three prizes and first prize was either 50 or 100 dollars. so i mean just by entering your your accruing money and uh so i would go clean up at these little festivals and enter every contest and i knew my two songs on mandolin and and uh and then i eventually graduated up to the uh the mississippi state fair contest that was the big deal in in the state and um i never won i never won that contest and we all felt like it was rigged and all this stuff you know but whatever i never won And, and we heard about uh through another person we met there this thing in Smithfield, Smithfield, Tennessee, where Mike Snyder grew up. And you're playing the banjo at this time, or you're playing right. the mandolin. Okay. Yeah, banjo was the main thing, and if if it was a small situation, and we'd throw the other instruments in the car and go. But um, so we go up to Smithfield, and it's the Junior National Banjo Contest, and there's not much national about it really, in, in reality, but they have the title, and <laughs> and uh, so I ended up winning, and I wrote a note to Mike Snyder and sort of at the end of the note wrote, you know, it's always been my dream to play the Opry, you know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. And lo and behold, he, with the phone rings one day in the kitchen and my mom's there. She picks it up and he's, he's called and he's asking if I want to come be his guest on the Opry. And how old are you? Uh, that was, I was about 12. So you're 12 years old. You go and win the national banjo competition. <laughs> Cause that is what it was called. Right. And you write a note and say, hey, you influenced me. That's right. From when you mailed it off to you got the call back, how, how long was that? Gosh, I don't remember. I don't remember. But And it was, I do remember it was junior national, so it wasn't quite what the full-blown national was, and, and 12 was the cap, the age cap. So I barely got in. But I remember it was just before my 13th birthday, which my birthday's in September, so it would have been, I think it was in August. I think it was in August I played, and the contest probably would have been that summer because I don't think we could have done a trip like that during the school year, you know. Um, were, you, were you waiting for a call from him? I didn't know what to expect. 
you know, I, I still don't and <laughs> stuff like that. Um, but I'm, it was kind of like when you hope for, you know, you, you're hoping for something for your birthday or for Christmas, or you hope for something on a TV show and you, you can't really ever count on it happening. But when it does happen, you're just, yeah, I knew it was going to happen. You know that. So he, he says, invite you up to the opera. Do you call him? And say, hey, when do you want me to come up? And I'll come up immediately. How does that work? How do you get oh, back in touch with him? I I don't remember. You know, at that, that was a point, mom thing. That was a, a mom thing, and she was so sweet to be as as the phrase goes, the the momager in those earlier years, and also very sweet not to be the momager later on. You know, like we we established some some boundaries there, which were nice later on. But when I when you're a kid, you know, and it was different, and and so I just remembered. We got to go in that, you know, and you've been on the opera and you yeah. played it, so yeah. you know you get that backstage the, entrance. The entrance, the opera, ar- the artist entrance. It's way yeah. different, you know, and we'd seen the opera a bunch, you know, and um, golly, it was it was pretty magic. So you go out at 12 years old, mm-hmm. and you play the opera the first time. Do you, you play the banjo, I'm assuming, since that's what you... I did. Did you sing at all, or did you just get to oh, play the banjo? Oh, no. I... That would come the next year, right? Right as puberty was hitting, and so there are a couple songs uh, from an album I got to make that next year with Mike Snyder's band, um, and I sang on a couple of those tracks, and it's <laughs> it's not my proudest moment. So, how do you get back on the opera again? Did you play so well they invited you back? Uh well, I didn't play it again until I was here. Living in Nashville. Okay, so it was that long between. Yeah. Well, there was one. T- there was one thing. It wasn't an Opry show. It was some big bluegrass jam day, and we did go back a few months later, and I got to jam and play again on the Opry. But it wasn't the Opry Opry. You know, it was just the stage, which is still amazing. And then I moved to Nashville at twenty-one. And the the next time I really was on the stage for the Opry show would have been backing up Rebecca Lynn Howard, who is a super talented singer and writer and artist. And um, she put a few records out, had a hit or two, and has continued to write. And she's in Steven Tyler's band now, um, but also does her own production. And So the next time you went there, you were playing for her? That's right. You were like our player. I was the the side musician. Okay, I want to go back to the kid thing because you were. A, did you practice a lot, or did it come easy as you practiced a lot? It it would depend on what it was. It's the guitar. Uh, well, it never felt like practicing. You know, I'm not the best practicer. I actually am practice more now than I probably ever have. Piano, I practiced. Uh. Tried fiddle for a couple of years. That was not the the most successful venture. And to, you know, you you don't want me to be your fiddle player. I'll just put it like that. But it took a lot more practice because it was a little more foreign to me, not having frets and not having a pick and having to do the bow instead. But uh, guitar was just always fun to play. And if if picking out chords and solo parts and licks off of records counts as practicing, yes, I practiced a lot. But I wouldn't say I spent a great deal of time, you know, running scales back and forth to a metronome, you know. It was just making, trying to make music. When did you feel like you were good enough to make a life out of this? It's, 
it's a hard question for me to answer because I I don't ever remember not just thinking that's where it was going, but I don't remember ever going. I, I, I it just always was the next thing in front of me. You know, it was whatever came next, and and it got more and more. I got more and more involved, and it got more and more serious, and it was the time to start looking at college options. And I had done really well academically, so I had some really good offers, especially in-state. And then there was Berkeley in Boston, which was uh, expensive and, and, and even with scholarships, expensive still. But in my heart, it was just, this has to be it. You know, I'd been there for a summer program and fell in love with it and fell in love with the people there and... and uh, that might have been the point at which I officially signed up for this. When you, you get know. to Berkeley, and it's and I have other friends who went to Berkeley, you know, mm-hmm. just crazy music brains. When you get there and you're around other like-minded people, they're they're, you know, their brains are like yours. Yeah, is that strange for you since you've never really been completely surrounded by people like you? It was it was the best culture shock anyone could have. I mean, you're a kid from Mississippi, right? Going to Boston. Right. And you're a kid in a small town where there's probably not a lot of what you do happening around you at the level that you want to do mm-hmm. it. So talk about when you get a, when you get to Boston, you get to Brooklyn, you meet all these other kids who are, are kind of in the same same place you right. are. Right. Well, yeah, because well, in, in Mississippi, I'd had a, a lot of people who mentored me. So there were, there were the guys I played in bars on the weekends with, and they were all in their 30s and 40s and better than me and and that was a gift you know i believe in trying to not be don't ever be the most talented musician in your band you know that you're not going to grow that way and so the the biggest shift being in boston was that everyone it was all the me's from all the other towns which is is what you're saying what you're asking but but the the shift wasn't that i all of a sudden was surrounded by people that were lifting me up it was that they were doing that but they were my age and they had the same story and the same you know future in all its uncertain glory um and it was it's a very international school and boston is i mean kind of like when you first went to little rock and then austin it would have been like both of those in one maybe possibly just because I mean, the Red Sox won that first. My first semester, the Red Sox broke the the great Bambino curse. Yeah, yeah, they won. And I mean, here I, in Mississippi, you, you you probably remember this too, or, or you can relate to this. It's you know, you get in the car to drive to the parking lot next door in Boston. It's like, man, you're gonna walk. We're gonna. I don't care if there's four feet of snow. We're just walking everywhere, or we're gonna get on the subway. There's a subway, you know, all of that, and you know, there's a, a little Italy called North End and real Italian immigrants here like cutting the salami and the cheese and you can actually it's right off the boat from Italy and you can buy it right here on you know so it was just this crazy thing and it felt like a summer camp that never ended because it it just wasn't I mean it was challenging but it it wasn't challenging in a way that felt difficult because it was so much fun and everybody else was there having so much fun it was the Disneyland of of being a young musician. It wasn't a crazy competition to you? Uh, not really. 
Because, you know, and the beauty of, of, of Berkeley is you find your people and it turns out, and just same here in Nashville, all your people, your 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 crew, they all have different talents and do different things. And and if I if I showed up at Berkeley with any chip on my shoulder, it was what I call the three chord music chip. Because, you know, they're like all these kids who could do this stuff I'll never be able to do. And I consciously was sort of, whoa, I don't, I, I, I'm curious about that and I want to know more about it, but I don't want to ever not be excited about G, C, and D. If, if I ever get to a point where I'm not thrilled by the chords and the ACDC songs, then I'm doing something wrong, you know? So I sort of had this defensive nature when it came to, something that might have felt like competition. It was like, whoa, that's cool. You do that. This is what I do. I love songs that are this simple. And I I got to be in a bluegrass band for credit, for college credit. And I was a banjo player, and there weren't really other banjo players. So I I was just collaborating all the time. It wasn't competitive in that way. And and my major was uh, production and engineering, which I picked because it meant I could go be in these studios with SSL consoles and be around the gear and um, all the friends I made there, you know, we we were forced to collaborate. If you had a class in uh, production and engineering, it was a session-based class. So you had to go find musicians and a a singer and a songwriter, which might be the same person but might not. You had to budget it out, which meant working with the music business folks. And so you were working with all the other people and and your job is different even even down to most of the classes you would do two projects each semester one as producer one as engineer and you'd partner with somebody so for their production project you were their engineer so the there was not a lot of opportunity to feel cutthroat and now i we visited some other schools that were more traditional conservatories and you could tell cuz everybody was trying to play this beethoven piece or something and there's there, there is a definite way to do Beethoven and Mozart right and a way to do it wrong. Um, and you can easily uh, grade people and, and order them. And it wasn't best. like, Mike, what was that movie with the kid and the drums? Whiplash. It wasn't like Whiplash on banjo? It was like, come on! Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, there was, there was you know, challenges. There was a challenging situation with most of my professors. I mean, they pushed us. What got you? What instrument got you into Berkeley? Was it banjo? Uh I think I signed up on paper for guitar, but I always had the banjo with me, and used that as a a way to go. This is something different. I have a friend who went as a vocal, and she came out playing the fiddle. Yeah, and so I don't. You know Natalie Stovall? Yes, I do. I was about to say. I think you're talking about Natalie. Yeah, and I, she plays the fiddle. She's so great at the fiddle. Right. And I was talking to her about Berkeley. And she's like, Yeah, I, I went in as a vocal. Right, as a singer, and she sings great. She's one of the best singers in town. Like she sings fantastic. Right, but she has that fiddle. I, w- I thought she went in for fiddle because she's you know so good yeah. at playing the fiddle. Uh, let me talk for a second about this. So, Blue Apron, you know, not all ingredients are created equal. For me, I always like to know what's in my food, and even better, it's affordable. So, when you come to my house, you'll see a box, and just it's on my counter right now. And it says Blue Apron. It's in like a brown box. And they send you all the ingredients. And basically, for less than $10 per person, per meal, Blue Apron delivers all these recipes that you order, that you get online. You go to blueapron.com. 
slash BobbyCast, and they send you the pre-portioned ingredients. You have to buy too much, and they send you these meals that you can home cook, and they're delicious. And there are new recipes up every week. Customize your recipes based on your preferences. They have several delivery options. You can customize that too. And each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card as well, which you can make this in 40 minutes or less. So I love Blue Apron. You're thinking about changing it up. If you're bored with home meals right now, check out this week's menu and get your first three meals for free with free shipping. BlueApron.com slash BobbyCast. BlueApron.com slash BobbyCast. You love how good it feels, how good it tastes. Uh, Blue Apron, a better way to cook. BlueApron.com slash BobbyCast. All right, so Charlie Warsham's here, and we're talking about – and I'm going to play something here. Let's, we, we talked about some history stuff. Let me play some Cut Your Groove here. This is All from right. – uh, you can buy it now, but the record's coming out in April. Because the world keeps spinning like an old big troll Round and round, over and over When the needle drops down, what you going to do? Life is a record, better cut your groove this song I'm gonna go backwards so tell me about this song okay right I love it uh, this album started in your old stomping grounds of Austin, Texas at Waterloo Records I was in between tours and I was really burned out and I, I bought these three notebooks at, at, at Waterloo and that song and all the songs I wrote or, or co-wrote on the album were born in those notebooks and uh, Cut Your Groove was, I call it my theme song, because the whole notebook thing and, and this album was me sort of working out being a human being on one level, but also sort of coming to grips with, you know, this is the thing I've always loved, and I somehow got to a point where I was so burned out, I was on the edge of not loving it anymore. And so it was me falling back in love with music, and... Uh, and that song, I forget the when when exactly it came in the process, but I just remember I was doing these morning pages. I promised myself I'd fill a page every day, and the only rule was tell the truth. And uh, it could be, you know, I should have gone for a run yesterday, but I didn't, and then I ate pizza, and I feel terrible. And that might have been it. And there were a lot of days it was something that, just dumb you know but I would do these word games too where I'd write a word down and and use this the five senses plus the sense of body um like if you're trembling because there's it's scary or the sense of motion which is sort of car sickness or something and uh and based on the senses you would use that word and just see where it took you and I put the word groove on paper and I'd gotten in this habit so much that I could actually sometimes write it out uh, stream of conscious and it would end up rhyming and it kind of worked like that and I had a couple of different days I spent with that word and then I brought it to my buddy Oscar and we started writing this song and Oscar you got to understand is younger than me and at the time was living in this house that was sort of a musician's Hostel, you know, which is you see all over town, and that's that's the first house I lived in in Nashville was that environment. So you go in, and there's pizza boxes, and there's guitar cases, and nobody has anything nice except for all this recording gear and instruments. And you can you can see the priorities, and it reminded me of my journey when I first moved to town. And so I was drawing on that, and the idea of the word groove and where we landed and, and stuff, and just seeing myself in Oscar, and and he was throwing out things and. And that's where that song really came from. So, 
you talk about being burnt out. What burned you out? Well, you mentioned it twice. In like, yeah, in like the span of, of sixty seconds or so. Right. So it sounds like you've kind of had some sort of like, okay, I'm tired, and now you're back. Yeah, it was. Uh, and I use the word burned out because it's it's not the right word, but it's the the closest I can get to what it was, which is, you know, the what was frustrating you. All right, I learned this great definition over the last couple of years that integrity is when your insides and your outsides match. And I was in a place where I didn't feel like my insides and my outsides matched. I had spent my life playing music and loving it, and if I worked harder, I, I, I was rewarded somehow more for it. And, and I could always just go work and get better and 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 then it would just all make sense based on that and 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 I signed this record deal and it was amazing and all of a sudden this thing that was always my life just the music and trying to wake up every day and get better and trusting that more or less that if if I do that that everything else works out all of a sudden part of my job and part of the picture was well, you've got to think about these things, and they might be the photo shooter, the video shooter. What do you think about this haircut, or what do you think about these clothes? And then touring strategy, and da 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 da, all this, and social media. And then I'm on social media, and you know, which I actually took this weekend off of social media, and it was the greatest thing for me ever. I might have to start doing it more because it's comparison is such a a dangerous thing in this business. It doesn't do anybody any good, you know. Uh, and and yet we also have to sort of keep our eyes open and see what's on the landscape, you know. And so I was just, I ended up in this place where I'd been on the road nonstop for 18 months. Uh, I didn't feel like my music was connecting. And I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought something was wrong with me. So every time I felt that, I would just work harder get on the hamster wheel faster, you know? And the truth is that it just, it just doesn't always, it doesn't always go as we plan. And, and, and I was always right to just think if I just work on myself, try to get better, it's all going to work out. And of course I got to manage these other things, but my job is to tell the truth. That's why I ended up writing it on that notebook, even if I didn't know that at the time. And, and so I just got to this place where I was physically exhausted I was frustrated and, and and I was frustrated that it didn't work. I felt pressure to you know uh prove my label right. You know, they'd invested all this in me and and, and my you know and, and my priorities. Here's the other thing. My my happiness was attached to these expectations I had put on myself and that and that caused pressure. And so when I fell short of those expectations, I didn't think I had earned happiness and I didn't feel like I'd done my job. And that just is not a healthy way to try to do a 30, 40 year career, you know? And, and so I, I took this time and I did a lot of work on myself. And I mean, you've talked about this in your book and I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, man, I mean, I've, I've been seeing a counselor, seeing a therapist for a while now. And I, I got to go, 
to this place called Onsite, which is sort of like a six-day intensive. Uh, you know, you check your phone in and everything, and 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 you just work on yourself. And so I've learned so much about myself now. Um, and I don't think I can, if we're going backwards to look at this, I can't tease apart this record and that part of my journey. You know, I've always just been music, 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 and and I I needed to take a minute and kind of go, okay, human being. Let's look at this. So, when do you decide you're going to... Like, what? what is it? Because I've had breaking points for me. What was the breaking point for you where you're like, okay, something's got to change because I can't go at this pace, at least emotionally and mentally, and yeah. make it. Like, where was it for you where it was like, okay, I got to take a step back? Because that's yeah. a hard decision to make. Yeah. Well, and some of it, to be fair, was sort of made for me. I mean, I have to give my label credit. Uh, Chris Lacey, my A&R and Espo... Who, who runs the label, they both sort of said, hey, we're, we're worried about you. You don't seem to be happy. Why don't you go make Charlie music? You know, and man, that was the greatest gift because, I mean, I can't tell you, I mean, had I been somewhere else, I don't know that I'd still have a deal. I don't know that they that would have been said. It might have been, you need to cut these hits or whatever. I don't know, you know, but I know that what they, the way they helped me was a was a gift and i think it all came to a head towards the end of the fall of oh my gosh i think for 2014 i was on the cmt tour and it was a great tour to be on and when tours like this get booked as you know they often are booked nine months 12 months in advance and so the tour was me and Sam Hunt and Kip Moore. <laughs> and between the booking of the tour and the tour, Sam Hunt became, I call Elvis, you know. I mean, he just was on fire. And uh, and my record just kind of ran out of gas. None of this is anybody's fault or plan or anything. It just, that's how, what happened. But I was locked in to go on after Sam Hunt. And people were coming to the shows. Rightly so, they were wanting to hear Sam Hunt, and they only got about fifteen twenty minutes of him, and then they got me for forty five minutes. And I took it personally, I really did, and that was not something I should have done. But I walked off stage really angry with myself and and frustrated, uh, and. Not not at Sam, and I wish I could say in every instance not at the audience, but I just couldn't understand, you know. But now I can see it clearly, and and the the people at the shows had no idea that that's how tours get booked, and that's how it was, and that's just how it was, and it's how it had to be, you know. And I love Sam, and I'm a fan, and and yet I had this really difficult job of following him, and and I'd already. I was coming off of another tour that was coming off of another tour and 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 somewhere in there too I also was sort of given the news you're going to have to go start over with a new record and my expectations again they were still driving my happiness so I'm thinking what what are you talking about man there's we got to do two more singles like this is crazy and but that's just that's just life you know that was just what happened and uh and I was really lucky to be on that tour. I was really lucky to have the album and have it 
connect as much as it did connect and I just couldn't see it clearly at the time and so when that tour was over we we went to Canada that next winter that next February and did a tour and and then the brakes came on pretty hard and and it just took me a couple years to uh, I call it emotional bloodletting you know I just had to get past the frustrations so that and to a place where I could see things clearly and and now I'm just I'm happy because I'm happy and I get to do what I love and I'm very grateful for that and I practice a lot of gratitude um but I but I don't think my story is necessarily unique because I think you know that's the challenge of of when you get a record deal I mean that's all of a sudden you're on radio tour and then you're on a regular tour and then you're you know, it's just boom, boom, boom. It's all these things, and and people are looking at you like you're the Coca-Cola bottle, and they change the design of the bottle. Only it's not the label on the bottle. This is you. This is your vulnerability on, you know, on speakers, and and when you get on stage. I mean, if I if I gain ten pounds and I don't fit in my photo shoot clothes, you know, it's not. That's me. It's not some product, and it's just kind of a roller coaster ride, and and I think it's. I think it's a challenging journey for for most anyone who has that opportunity just because it's so abnormal. I mean, if you look back at as far back as Elvis, I mean, the guy had to go run out movie theaters at night because he couldn't go to a regular... You know what I mean? And that's a whole other set of problems and stuff. All that to say, it's just public professions create abnormal life circumstances and which you know too you have your own experiences that I that some of which I've read in your book and and more of which I know you have and it's just sort of one of those things and and so my goal now is sort of like with cut your groove especially is this is what I've learned this is how I came to peace with it and I hope that in telling you all out there that it helps you somehow on your journey you know do you come from the line of thought that you come away from this better and stronger because of all the pain as an artist. Yeah, and and I don't mean it to sound it does like pitiful me. It, it doesn't. But no, I think that uh, yes, absolutely. You know, there's that great Leonard Cohen song that has the line, "The cracks are where the light gets in." I mean, yeah. If yeah, I don't think I would be able to appreciate anything that ever might come my way, uh, good. If I didn't have the times when it was withheld from me for whatever reason, you know. Do you think, because something I've struggled with, do you think that you didn't know how to be happy until you really felt what it was like to be sad? And you really didn't know what it was like to Uh be sad until you really got sad? Ooh. I do think that the two create a tension that is necessary. Uh, and you know, for me, the way I, the way I see that, the way I interpret that is that, uh, it's okay to be sad and it's okay to be angry and it's okay to be lonely. Um, I don't think that the way we all get hit from all sides with advertisements and, you know, everything from social media to TV and whatnot, 
you know, we're not necessarily encouraged on a daily basis to be anything short of happy. And we sort of, you know, I mean, if you look at my Instagram feed, you would think that I have the most charmed life there ever was. <laughs> that's everybody's, though. I mean, that's, that's everybody. That's everybody's. And so we're all on these phones, like, swiping down and seeing everybody else's rock star version of their life and thinking, well, why isn't that me? And the truth is, man, that is you, and that's them too. But if you if you got past the social media feed, there's also all these other things, and it's okay to feel those things. And if you don't let those things process themselves, I take a boxing class every week if I can, religiously, because I don't care what it is, if it's unfounded or, or not, I find that if I spend an hour punching the air and punching the the mitts of the instructor a week, I work out whatever frustrations I have and my week goes better. You know, and if I don't do it I have a I end up having a weird week. We are made to process all these things. And I know like I know I go deep on this stuff, but check this out. Up until about fifty years ago, if you were a human being on this planet to keep your house warm in winter you had to chop firewood pretty much you know what i'm saying or at least to 100 years ago you had to get out and swing an axe for a couple hours every day and and anger releases itself physically and that's a healthy way to get rid of that anger if somebody died you didn't send them you didn't call the coroner you you put them up in the house and hope they the body didn't smell bad and then you and your friends down the street got out the shovels and dug the hole and buried your friend or your family member. And the sadness was forced. You had the, you were forced to process those emotions, and it was okay to process those emotions because it was a part of daily life. But today we're insulated from all of that, and we're encouraged to be happy all the time. And I'm sorry, but that just isn't. It's what you said. You, you in order to really know happiness and feel it, you you have to know the other emotions too. So you think because they did more exertion back in the day, mm-hmm. they were able to get more feelings out? Well, I just think it was a more natural use of our our bodies and our, our daily routines. Yeah. I've never heard the theory before. I think it's an interesting theory. I mean, who knows? I mean, a scientist can call in at any moment and well, We don't shoot have any down. phones, so they're not <laughs> Yeah, going I know. To. I'm just saying, once it's, once it's out. But I'm, I'm really, you know, that's, that's kind of how I see it, you know, and I try to... I try to do what I can to mimic what I imagine would be those natural things. And music is a great thing for, I mean, you, you talked about working through sad stuff, but I would say you, you'd probably agree that you're fairly happy right now. I think I'm an, I, I just don't know if there's ever for me happiness. Okay. I don't know if it's real. Well, let's say this. On a given night, you're feeling good. You're feeling happy. Have you ever listened to sad music when you're happy? Oh, yeah. See? That's my favorite music to listen to when I'm happy. And some of the happiest people I know love sad, lonesome music. And and I think music is one of those natural things. I don't feel as alone when I listen to sad music. Mm. And I think that's why most of my library is at like a BPM of like two. (laughs) Yeah. Hey, (laughs) two of the most powerful words in the English language, me too. That's what music is. Sad music, especially. It's Merle Haggard is Merle Haggard because he wrote all these great songs saying, Yeah, you had a crappy day? Me too. You're in prison? Me too. 
your your mama died, me too. You know, it's like, yes, yes. Some I'm with you. That's what that's what music is. Somebody saying I'm with you, man. I think that's why real authentic music cuts through too, because then the every, everyday landscape, everyone seems so pristine because mm-hmm. we have social media, we have what everyone's trying to put out there, so we don't see what's really happening. We know yeah. what's happening with us, and we think that this is some sort of anomaly. Like we have the only crappy stuff happening to us because we don't hear about anybody else's. We don't see about anybody right. else's, and so there isn't that me too until you get music yeah and you actually hear and feel the vulnerability of someone and there's happiness me too and i think you ask how happy i don't know that i i don't think there's such a thing as a one through ten i, don't, I never say mm-hmm. ten on anything i don't think there's a ten i think i'm probably the best i've been in a long time mm. if normal is a five i'm at a 5.1 that's wow. a, that point one's a big jump for me yeah just because again like i, I think it's a grind forward to prove people's expectations right. Yes. Yes. And not wrong. The people that have many detractors, many, yeah. that want to see me fail because I'm just not the system. Nothing personal against me, but I'm not the system that's been here forever. Right. I don't care about them. But it's the people that said, hey, we have faith in you. Those are the ones that you want to prove right. It's not the people to prove wrong. Yeah. But you know what? Even just getting to that point is takes most of some people's journeys we're all on the journey and i mean i I would ask this of you uh is it when you when you don't want to say definitively happy or happiness is is there some element there that for you i mean and it's in your mantra i mean it's fight grind repeat i mean is it that you're waking up every day going i want to try again i gotta prove it again yeah i have what has been called imposter syndrome where you don't really feel like you should be where you are. Mm-hmm. Like you think you're, you know, eventually you're going to get caught. Like I do, I feel like I've been robbing, robbing banks for 10 years and someone's going to feel, okay, you're not really that good. So let's go ahead. You've been a fake the whole time. Let's go ahead and pull you back a bit. I've I've felt that too. I've struggled with that too. I still do. And I still have my days where I really have to, you know, I have some routines in place to help me with that, but. I don't know anybody in this town in the, in the music business who doesn't at some point feel imposter syndrome. Because, I mean, you and I could go to any of the restaurants right now and the person who'd come up and pour our water is probably a world-class singer or songwriter. Chances are. You know? And and that can be both a good and a bad influence on someone in this town. You know? Do you believe in luck? I, I believe in yeah I think there's I mean I think there's lucky breaks I think there's I mean I like to call it coincidence because it's I, I think you know uh, I mean they say don't talk politics and religion I'm just going to say this I, I'm a Christian but I'm not I don't often identify with the angry yelling I hate everybody who isn't like me version of my faith that I sometimes see on TV and that makes me sad. Um, But I think that in the way that a 12-step program comes out of the gate saying we believe in a higher power, it's not any particular religion that they're trying to get at and they they welcome. They just... The the 12-step program 
places great importance on uh, believing in in a divine hand, believing in something that's sort of greater than ourselves. And, um, And I think that luck is a thing, but I believe it's cousins with... It's you know you could say the brothers Osborne are, are lucky, but I've known known John. He's one of the first people I met when I moved to town, and I know how hard he and TJ have worked, and I can make a case for them not being lucky. But the but the truth is they've worked really hard, and some really cool coincidences have also happened, and it all adds up to something that one person might call luck, and one person might just call man they they friggin did it you know and and you know both are true both are true i think i mean in their case they i know how hard they've worked and how talented they are yeah and john's been here for what is 12 13, 13 years, years yeah. at this point yeah and so i didn't know i was having dinner with john somewhat recently and you guys played together yeah and i'm a fan of both of you guys and we were and i was talking about you and he was like yeah charlie and I used to play together but, and somebody else played in that band too. Uh, Matt Utterback, who <laughs> plays bass for Hunter Hayes. Okay, and who else? Uh, Donnie Fallgator, Josh Matheny. Josh is in a band called Steel Union, and so is Donnie. And Josh also writes for Curb. Uh, Kevin Weaver. And Kevin is one of my favorite human beings. And he's played drums for just about everybody. Uh but yeah, that we were all in this band together, and the band was called King Billy. You and John Osborne are in the same band, yeah. Which is, but just as guitar players, like you guys are different level. Oh well, I was I was kind of utility acoustic, so I, I played a lot. You were the utility guy. That's yeah. insane to think about. <laughs> yeah. But I always borrowed John's Stratocaster, his first electric, and I eventually bought it from him. But let's be honest, that's his guitar forever. I'm just holding on to it for a while, you know. But yeah, what do you think about John as a player? Like, what what comes to mind style wise? Well, he he built his foundation on the true great players, all that go all the way back, and he is a master uh, scholar of the true original greats. He's not founded on his playing; isn't founded on something new. It's the new in his playing is his own voice, and I think that's what makes him really great. And and I say what I'm what I'm getting at is John is on a path that lands a guy in Keith Richards territory or Brian May territory or Angus Young or Malcolm Young territory, which goes to say those are all guitar players that. You don't have to know much about guitar, but you know it's Keith Richards. And if you don't know his name, you know it's the Rolling Stones because you hear Keith Richards and nobody plays guitar like Keith Richards. Or you hear an ACDC song and you know that's Angus Young, even if you don't know his name, just because the guitar, the actual player, has such an original voice. And John is becoming an iconic player. He's not becoming a really good player. He he was that a long time ago. He's becoming John Osborne. You know, already their records, you know their records, not just by TJ's voice, but by his fingers, John's fingers, his playing. 
and uh, and I mean, he's been an influence on me. I, I've always thought of him as a big brother because I, when I showed up into town, he had been in town two or three years, and and if we had off time or he played something at Soundcheck, he'd be like, "Ooh, can you show me that?" You know. So he's been one of my teachers over the years. Um, I couldn't love him more as a player or as a human being. You and Vince Gill have a relationship. Yeah. How did that start? Oh, man. Uh, well, my parents are big Vince fans, and they went to see him probably ten times when I was a kid, and uh, and and he became quickly became a main influence. I call him my North Star. And uh, my first time to really interact with him, he was playing and singing as a guest on my first record on a song called Tools of the Trade. And it wasn't too long after that that we crossed paths again. And oh yeah, it's told the stranger. How'd you get Vince to get on that song? You know, the funny thing about that story is that I want to say a guy named John Grady uh, is the one. I, I, this may be memory failing me, but he's he's old friends with Vince, and and my my team and I were asking around to try to see if he would do it, and I think it was as simple as as me getting Vince's number and John going. If it wasn't John, what I remember is John said, "Here, when." You, because they basically somebody gave me Vince's number and said call him, so of course I'm thinking, well this is my hero. <laughs> I'm gonna call my just call him, just cold call this guy. Okay, sure. And uh, and if it wasn't John who gave the number, I remember him saying he probably won't answer, but I guarantee he'll call back. Like he he might not be able to pick up the phone, but he'll call you back. He calls, and I've since found out that he is a he's a telephone call guy. He he's not really a texter, you know, and. Uh, so I called Vince and I left the most awkward voicemail in the history of voicemails. And next day he calls me back and we set up a time and now I'm headed to his house, to his studio and, and that, and it happens. And you know, time goes by and I, I, the next thing I remember was getting to, uh, see him at the Opry. Uh, and then he did this really cool thing. You know, anybody that doesn't know, if you know Vince, you already know this, but if if you don't know Vince, he is the most gracious and pay-it-forward human being in country music, period. He is always lifting someone up and mentoring someone and guesting on someone's record. And, uh, and he decided, rather than just go do his normal tour, he would do a couple runs where he brought out uh, Ashley Monroe, Jenny Gill and myself and Vince would sing a few songs and then we'd each sing a few songs all in one show and be in a band together and so then you know a couple years go by and now I'm on a bus with my hero and sharing the stage with him and I remember Greg Allman came to one of the shows and I'm sitting here playing I'm looking over and there's Greg Allman I'm going holy crap you know and uh and then we just got to know each other better and better and it never quite feels normal because he's my hero but it's comfortable and, and he's a true mentor and a true friend. And I, I can 
reach out to him for advice and and he he'll call me to do gigs a couple weekends ago i was out on the road as his guitar player and i guarantee you <laughs> he does not need he doesn't need me to help him on guitar he doesn't need another guitar player he's good and if he does you know the guys that he normally has in his band are world class but but i think he just has this intuition and this desire to find people who are up and coming and give them a little boost and give them some confidence and a leg up and and does that motivate you to want to be that person? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh and and for me it's 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 a it looks different, you know. But you know, when when I if I'm in a room with Vince, he's been a lot further down the road than I have, but if I'm in a room with kids in a high school who are curious about this, then I've been a lot further down the road than them, you know, so that's maybe my version of it. Or if it's somebody who literally just signed a their first record deal or their first pub deal, you know, um, and not in a way of, hey, listen, listen here, kid, let me tell you how it is. It's just more like, how are you feeling? How are you, you know, really seeing that person and, and looking them in the eye and like, are, are you, you hanging in there? You got any questions? You good? You good? You know? Um, and it, and, and I get, here's the deal though. I get more out of that than anybody. You you talk about this in your book because you did the scholarship in your hometown, and you were saying you know you almost felt guilty about picking this other than instead of some other thing. Oh man, and I, you might have heard me because I was going, "What are you talking about?" Like, talking out loud to you, reading your book. Uh, you weren't anywhere near at the moment, so you couldn't hear. <laughs> but <laughs> but it was this thing where no man, that's exactly what you should do because nobody knows that journey better than you. If you go to your old high school. And you see a kid that you helped pick. I mean, come on, man. That's And this goes into my theory about chopping wood and burying the people down the street is it's natural to want to form local community. And local, even though you're not in Arkansas right now, that's still your local community. You grew up in it. You know it better than anybody. And so you are uniquely able to help. For it... My whole issue was if, um, like Charlie's talking about, was so with me when I would find things to help, I would start to feel guilty because I was only helping things that kind of helped me. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of, I'm only doing this because this certain ex helped me whenever I was a kid. You know, I, I help kids get glasses and see because I needed help to see when I was a kid. So there was this guilt that came along with that, like I'm only helping me. And I still struggle with that. And it's like, why am I only helping? I go to hospitals. I do musicians on call. I was in the hospital for a long time as a kid. Yeah. And so it's like, I think I wrote, why don't I just help birds? You know, I, <laughs> I've never, I'm not affected by any birds. Why don't I just help birds that are struggling to live? Uh, it's, it, it's, a, it's a weird thing to feel selfish from giving. And there's a, there's a guilt behind it. But yeah, that's for me. That's a struggle for me. I, I wish it weren't. I know what you mean, but the way I see it is that you're doing exactly what you should do. That's, I mean, it'd be, it'd be like, we're sitting here talking about how great Vince is for giving young singers and songwriters a leg up. It wouldn't quite make sense if all of a sudden everything he did had something to do with vaccinations in this remote (laughs) corner of the world because you're thinking, well, Vince and I don't, I don't get it. You know, he's, he, he has this 
God-given talent. And while he's used it in many ways that are amazing and writing songs like Go Rest High on That Mountain and the songs he's written in tribute to Merle Haggard and George Jones and uh, his father and have, have helped so many people, that to me is one of the best ways to use your talent. It's also not a bad way to use your talent to just go make cool records, period. Even if all they're really, if, if one particular record is I feel good and I want to tune out the world, awesome. That's still using your talent for a positive thing, but I think the the greatest use of the talent is to take that expertise and and fold it back into itself with someone else, which is what you do with the stuff in your hometown because it's what you know. All, you can sit at that hospital bedside and relate to the person in it better, the kid in it better because you've, you've been there. The way that Vince can sit on a bus with me and encourage me at two in the morning going down the highway to the next gig because he's been in my shoes. And that's, and so for me too, it's sort of like if I do something, if I go to Berkeley and I speak to Berkeley students, that's the best use of my talent to, to do something charitable, you know, cause I've been there. When you see guys like John Mayer, who is my favorite artist. Yeah. Is he at a level it's so much higher than these other players that you see around. Like, is he, in your mind, the best artist player out there now? He is one of my favorites. Uh, I gravitate to his songwriting as much as anything, but that's not to discount his playing. And and I was watching an interview. I've also geeked out on all the interviews he's ever done. And he was saying something about his time at Berkeley, and he was looking at the players around them, the other students, and they could do all this stuff. And uh, he was sharing in the interview that he had this inner dialogue with himself. Wow, I could sit, I could go learn these things and play like this and probably play to 10, 20 people max, you know. Or I can take this knowledge and channel it into a way that I can play for, you know, millions of people. And... He certainly, to me, for my whatever bet I would place, is that he he's definitely in his class, as in high school class of, of artists, the best bet to, as a player, really become an iconic player. People buy John Mayer records because of his guitar playing. People buy certain guitar pedals and certain guitars and models of guitars because of John Mayer. So yeah, I mean that I think that proves that to be true and I'm, but the same is true of Ed Sheeran. And Ed's playing is totally different. You can't compare Ed and John. Uh they're they're apples and oranges, you know, but John is certainly in in my book, yeah, one of the best. To me, you know, when you have guys like you know BB King or you could go down the list and they and, and he's the only guy on by that they can play with them. That's right. I mean Derek Trucks does it too, you know, but but I don't know Derek Trucks may be a little older than Mayor though. Maybe so. I you know, I don't know. Hey Google how Derek so. Trucks is. Um but you know, he's he's turning on a whole different audience than not a whole different audience. Um and and here's the thing. 
it, it, we're at least 30, 40, 50 years away from seeing if either of them reach B.B. King or Earl Scruggs status. And by that, I just mean, I'm sorry, man. Probably nobody since B.B. King has inspired more people to pick up a guitar. Have you listened him. to Wave 2 of John Mayer's stuff? I haven't. I, I saw it, and and I, I grabbed it, and I have not made time to listen to it. I don't want to halfway listen to it. It's funny to hear a little B.B. King yeah. shout-outs that he throws in. Yeah. Mike Holt is... He's 37. He is. John wow. 39. Wow, he's younger than John Mayer. Yeah. That's crazy. Wow. You know what he doesn't have? He doesn't have the pop lineage to be that's on the right. radio. Mm-hmm. And that's where that's what makes John a unique animal. It's his, it's his songwriting sensibility and his playing and his singing. And he also still acts 15. So yeah. <laughs> maybe that's why I always yeah. feel like he's, he's, he's young. It's funny. He's, he's come to Berkeley before. He came to Berkeley when I was there and spoke, and it was great. And, and he's even said things at times that contradict investing in social media like don't don't worry about that just get good and that's true i think i think that was right for him to say maybe to the audience at the time but you have to you can't deny that he is a very savvy social media oh yeah guy yeah he is and sure. he knows he knows what he's doing so you look around now and then i want to get back to, the, to your record in a few minutes but you look around now in nashville like who do you see artist wise player wise we're like okay that's cool that's cool maybe even people don't know him I mean, tough question to ask, and you're not forgetting anybody. But who comes to mind? You look around, you go, okay, maybe that hasn't popped quite yet, mm. but I can see something there. Well, I was gonna say John Osborne and and the brothers, but um, people are starting to know about them, and and do know about them. Uh, this is tough because I, I got to think. Question it too. isn't on the spot. I mean. I'm gonna let you stew in it because we got nowhere to go. Yeah. Well, I love. I'm just gonna say names, and this doesn't necessarily have bearing on how popular or not or known or unknown they are. These are people I love that I'll go out of my way to go see. Uh, the Time Jumpers with Vince, with Vince, yeah. uh, but also Andy Reese. And Andy is not in his 30s, and he's not gonna go be a pop star anytime soon. But he's just one of the best there is. And the tr- that same is true of Paul Franklin on Steel. Uh, anytime, and also in this category of, I'm not talking about up and coming, it hasn't hit yet. It's just they've chosen a path where if you know, you know, and if you don't, whatever, they, they're already well into their career. But Sean Camp, when he plays at the Station Inn, uh, Jack Pearson, when he plays at the Station Inn or Third and Lindsley, he uh, is a big influence on... Derek Trucks actually. Anytime Derek plays in town, Jack Pearson comes out and he plays like a cheap guitar through a cheap amp with one pedal and a busted cable, and he sounds better than anybody. And uh, and uh, eighteen South, which is John Randall and Jesse Alexander, and Guthrie Trap is in that band. Another friend from Berkeley, and I even knew him from Mississippi. He's got family in Mississippi, and I knew him when he was thirteen and I was seventeen or whatever. But Johnny Duke, and he's been on stage with uh, Ashley Monroe and Leanne Womack and on record with Little Big Town. Uh, he'll play a show here and there. Brent Cobb, uh, who put a great record out last year and has written songs for folks. I've written song, songs on my new record with him. And uh, Man, it's so funny. It's hard to say because I spend so much of my time and energy seeking out people who... 
this is, and this is probably to a fault. I should look more for the new thing, but I kind of make a habit out of trying to go find the old masters. There isn't a right or wrong answer, Charlie. Yeah, with that question. but no, that, but th- this is true. Like I, 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 I wouldn't be the best person to ask because I'm not looking for that. You know, I'm looking, uh, I'm looking for. I mean, I've had the chance to write with. Uh, uh, oh, I'm spacing on his names. Two guys now. All right, Mac Davis and Bill Anderson. Mac Davis wrote in the ghetto. By himself, pretty much. Uh, I mean, Bill Anderson has had a hit in every decade since the 50s. And it's not like I'm going to get with these guys and we're going to create the new hit of the century, necessarily. It's that I know if I sit across the room from those guys, I'm going to pick up more uh, than I can with anybody else. Do you ever feel like you were born in the wrong generation? <laughs> uh, I have at times. I have at times, but I don't think so. I think I'm born in the right time. You know, I don't. I don't know that there there are as many like me, like minded. You know, in in some of some regards. But um, no, I think I was supposed to be here now. You know, I don't know 100 percent why yet, but I think I'm supposed to be here now. Do you think we ever know why? Uh, maybe not. I need the answer right now. Yeah, <laughs> I need to know myself. I'm asking you. You know, I think I think we spend a lot of our time trying to figure that one out, and some of us maybe get there, and some of us don't. You know, I'm gonna play this song here, "Southern by the Grace of God." Okay. Southern by the grace of God. I'm telling y'all, this Delta draw is stuck to me like love. Tell me about that song. Oh man, wrote that in uh, at Luke Dick's house with Luke and Shane McAnally, and uh, it's a uh, there's a great old Tom T. Hall song called Country Is, and it's sort of it was Tom T. Hall's way of he was here in Nashville at a time when a lot of people were writing a particular kind of song and up in arms about what's country and what isn't. Yeah, almost like exactly. Almost like today. Like today yeah. yeah. And uh and I think that song is my version of going, Hey guys, look, I uh my uncle cuts his hair with dog shears. I once crapped my pants at a banjo competition when I was not the not the one I won. This was the actual national banjo competition uh, when I was like twelve or whatever. And you can't out country me. You can't out country that man. I'm sorry, you know, or whatever. But it's just like, just to say. But equally, country is the guy who grew up in inner city Chicago and is just doing his thing or whatever, you know. And it's like, are we really going to arm wrestle about this? You know, like we can, we can waste our energy, you know, but this this is how I grew up and, and the music side of that song reminds me less of country music, uh, and more of everything else. For example, it feels very Led Zeppelin to me, um, which the song Ramble On by them was an influence on, on that. 
but then it also stuff that's predates what we consider country uh the he that's straight rip off of a a guy named Jimmy Martin who's known as the king of bluegrass and I'm a big Jimmy Martin fan because when I took banjo lessons my teacher happened to be his banjo player his a sunny mountain boy that was what he called his band guys and so it's sort of like that's my version of what Tom T Hall I think was saying which is country's what you make it it's all in your mind it's all in your heart it's living in the city it's living in the country it's it's loving your neighbor and you know it's just let's can can we please get past arm wrestling this and just speak our truths i don't know does that make sense it does <laughs> listen I, I deal with it all the time people tell me all the time what is and what isn't yeah and there there isn't an answer right especially now so you can yell and get on facebook and tell me what song sucks and what song is real country and are you just wasting both of our time right i get time to read it i definitely don't want to respond to it anymore yeah. so and that's country by that's that's my country and if you like it cool and if you don't cool you know i don't know shoot <laughs> I mean, let's let's go jam more mike d do you see like music and color or anything like because i mean you're such a good guitar player and you can like play like songs where you're like doing a whole one-man band do you have like a thing in your head where you like it's so dance? weird you ask that because i kind of do i mean it's not like a crazy strong thing and i think this goes back to i had a when i was first learning i had a keyboard and the keys were color-coded and i mm-hmm. think that's why i associate colors and because i learned on piano so the key of f is purple to me and the key of g is blue and the key of a is red and B flat is kind of orange, B is kind of yellow, C is white, D is black, E is green. I I can't. Do you shake think it. it's from the keyboard? Because Mayer says he sees colors when he plays, mm. but he doesn't have a keyboard. Do you really think it's colors, or is it something you guys' brain? Because you're you're definitely on the net. You're like you're like talking to an alien because you see things oh. that I've never seen. Like I'm on the earth, I walk on the earthly ground, I see things that my eyes let me see up and down. But that's it. You're on a, another headspace. I I don't know that I see it when I play, but if I'm in if I'm charting a song or I'm th- living a song in a key, I just I feel it. You know, I'm definitely thinking about other things when I'm playing or trying not to think. That's what I'm mostly doing is trying to just feel and not. But when I'm really just feeling it, like I you couldn't play me a song in a random key and I'd go, oh yeah, that's purple, and it's purple because it's F. I don't have perfect pitch to be able to say that's the key of F, you know. But I know Ramble On by Led Zeppelin, and I've learned to play it, and it's in E, and it does feel kind of green to me. I don't know why. It feels green. That's good. crazy. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that's crazy. I don't know. So record comes out when? April 21st. What do you want from this record? And how is it different from what you wanted last record? Uh, Man... There's a lot of things I want, but I know now I don't need. Let me say that. And there are things I hope for. There's three categories. There are things I hope for, and I hope for the same things we all do. You know, wild success and blah, blah, blah. I want to get to keep doing this and somehow be a little further down the road. You know, uh, and I need... I just needed to make it and I got to make it and people are going to get to hear it and 
I don't think there's anything I need from it. Um, but to get to keep doing it is, is a pretty strong want, you know, to whatever that means. If it just means that, you know, my label doesn't drop me and I, and they offer me another option and I'm somehow able to make a living doing this still. And it doesn't, you know, it's not something that just knocks me flat, you know, uh, for whatever reason, then that would be a great thing. And I want that with this record. And I mean, I want people to hear it and, and I hope they connect with it. And I have the wild dreams with it, but those are not what's important. You know, you and Brandy Clark going out. Yeah. You had 20 dates. Something like that. Yeah. yeah. We may add some more. We met about it last week and, um, we're, we got a lot of fun ideas. We're, uh, we're cooking up some fun stuff. So, so, you and Brandy are going to play separate? Well, yeah, we're going to play separate sets and then do some stuff together. I'm not quite sure yet how that looks. Um, I know we want to do some fun songs together, maybe bring the, the audience in on via social media to help us pick some of those songs, if it's different songs every night. We don't want it to be the exact same show every night, for sure, you know. Uh and I think we're going to do some fun stuff during the day as well. You know, there's there's this really cool thing that the Grammy Foundation does where they bring high school kids in for your sound check and things like that. And I don't know if we'll what what'll get worked out and what won't, but we want to do stuff like that too. And um, we'd really love to take this to more cities. You know, if, if this is successful and and there's a demand for it, we'd we'd love to keep rolling down the highway. Well, I'm a fan. I'm a genuine fan. Thanks, man. Likewise. And so, uh, you know, I hope you get whatever film that you get out of this record. I hope you get it. Thank you. If it means a bunch sold, if it means, you know, you're happy with all the songs that are on it. I don't know. I don't know what you find, where you find your happiness, but I hope you find it. Yeah, thank you. Well, getting to make it was the big one. That's the big happiness. And uh, it would be nice to buy a house <laughs> but you know I got a cool place I got a cool dog <laughs> I'm alright uh, and really man just getting to keep doing it not a lot of people get to do this and I'm I'm really grateful I get to do it and, and I'm a fan of yours I, your book really knocked me out man it, I, I appreciate that it, it, I was a fan before but you know it's just whew, knowing your story and it's not an easy story to tell and I think we all have a story, and we all have a similar story. It's just we don't see those stories because, again, all we're seeing is the very epidermis yeah. of what everybody wants us to see. Yeah. And I and I think I, I've said this before that I always felt as I was writing it, I was the only one that had that story until I wrote it and put it out. Then I realized everybody has something like that. Yeah. And they come and talk to you about it, and they're like, ah, this X, Y, Z. A, B, C, D, E, F, G has happened to me. And you're yeah. like, holy crap, when I wrote that, I thought I was alone. Yeah. Like, I thought I was alone in this world when I wrote that. Yeah. And so, yeah, it, it, that, if anything, that book's done so much for me because I just realized I'm not the only guy on the planet that yeah. has struggles. The old me too. Yeah. Me, Even, me what is too. it, page four or five, you're sitting there with Deion Sanders and he's going, me too, man. Yep. That's dang. And man. that, and still, like my dude, Deion Sanders, who I looked up to as a kid, <laughs> prime time. Like Dion, he'll just text me and be like, "You good?" And I'm, still, I'm like, "This is Dion." And if I don't text him back, he'll get mad. He's like, "I know you're watching your phone." Yeah. But still, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's it's one of those wild, 
wild things. Yeah. Oh, dude, it's, it's, it's been good to have you over at the house. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you coming. And uh, the record, whenever you hear this, either it's the record's already out, or this could be April, but when these podcasts are listened to for months, years, mm. this is probably put in the Smithsonian. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> Library of Congress, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you could be in your 10th record right now, but go back to this one. All right. And yeah. uh, what's the name of the record? Beginning of Things. Beginning of Things. So, that's the record to go back to. He's talking about here. The other five Grammy Award winning records afterward. Don't worry about that. <laughs> go back to this one that started it off. All right, Charlie. Good to see you, bud. Thanks, Bobby. All right, episode 39. And uh, I feel like I was charging like 80 bucks for a therapy session. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. I'll, I'll, pay, I'll pay you on the way out. Just All let right. me have a copy of that game show music. <laughs> Charlie Warsham. Download Cut Your Groove. You know, I was also tempted, but I didn't. Because I have the whole record, and I never get to—I never take records from anybody and listen to them ever. It's just my general rule. But I've listened to your record like four times. And I was like, yeah, I wonder if I should put up, a cu-. and I didn't. I didn't put up any clips of anything new. I was like, you know, I'm gonna—you can't. No, it's over now. So I didn't. But it's, it's really good. Like I, I really like the record. And I don't even want to talk about it anymore because it, right. it ain't out yet. But all right, uh, we'll, we'll see you uh, next time. Episode 39 is over. All right, goodbye. Bye.